Well, we're moving along in our, in, to talk about missions. And maybe, um, I think, trying to, I'm trying to build a case of, of just a, maybe a different understanding of missions that, uh, that, you've come, that you know, um, especially in light of some of the cultural uh, missions that are going on in our area, in this area, kind of uh, the things that are going on. And we'll we'll kind of we'll probably hit on those things more today than than before. But in in considering missions specifically, we've been looking at the Great Commission. We've we've already looked at the exposition of the Great Commission. We've already looked at the essence of the passage. In exposing the text, it, you know, we 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 actually bro- broke that out. And we looked at it very closely and actually exposited it. And uh, we saw that what Jesus is communicate, communicating to us through the commission, the things that we are to do, and that, and that is to make disciples. And if Jesus commissions us to make disciples, then it was important that we understand what it means to really be a disciple of Christ. And that leads us really nicely into today's lesson, which is the method of the Great Commission. The method of the Great Commission. And all of these lessons on the Great Commission so far lead to a very important question, and that is, how are disciples made? That's the method. What method are we going to use? Um, And first, before we dive into this, I have to give a disclaimer because today this this lesson is going to feel more like a college lecture than a Sunday school class, but it's really important that you understand where missions have gone. Um, There's there's a lot of quotes because I think it's important to lay the groundwork before we break into the texts, and I think you'll see what I mean as we work through it, but... But it is really important. There's history here that, that shows us a, a real shift in the way missions is done uh, today. If we're to make disciples, then we need to know what methodology should be used to do it. In other words, is, is anything okay as long as it's in the name of Christ? That's kind of the, the, the way we need to look at it. And historically, that question has been answered in simple terms like evangelism and gospel proclamation, proclaiming the gospel. The church viewed the Great Commission as a mandate to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so it could be proclaimed to lost people. Mark 16.15 says, preach the gospel. Luke 24.47 says, that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Acts 1.8, you're more familiar with that one. You shall be my witnesses. And John 15.27, you will testify also. Proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ was viewed as the key to making disciples and the key to fulfilling the Great Commission. So it shouldn't surprise us that the book of Acts records the discipleship making mission of the church. Go ahead and turn to um, Acts 6-7. We're going to see that the discipleship making mission of the church is the ministry of the word. Acts 6-7. And if you get it, go ahead and read it. So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obeyed to the faith. Yeah, so this text shows a clear connection between the ministry of the word and the task of discipleship making. The word kept on spreading, the number of disciples continued to increase, great number of priests were becoming obedient to the faith. The word, the word, ministry of the word There's a connection there with discipleship, making disciples. Um, All right, I'm going to give you three other verses in Acts. Acts 12, 24, 
Acts 13.49, and Acts 19.29. Acts continues to talk about the spread of the word, and we're going to see that in these verses. So Acts 12.24. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. Right, so there it's spreading. Um, 13.49. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. Right. So we see it's the it's the word that's spreading. Um, Nineteen twenty. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. The point there is that it's the word. It, the, the the word was spreading. The word of the Lord. That is what's spreading. That's key to understand that. Acts also shows the priority of preaching. Three more verses, or four more verses. Acts 14, 15, and 16. Acts 15, 35. Oh, and one more. Acts 28, 31. Does anybody have Acts 14, 15, and 16? Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and the and sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Has the idea of preaching, preaching the gospel. Um, and 1535. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch where they, they and many others taught and preached the word of God, the word of the Lord. Right. They were preaching, preaching the word of the Lord. Uh, 2831. Preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness and So we see in, in the book of Acts also the priority of, of preaching in those verses. Now, 1 Corinthians 1, 17 to 25. Here it shows us the importance of preaching and teaching the clear, undiluted gospel. Even though the, the Corinthians desired something less offensive and actually foolish. Um, 1 Corinthians 1, 17 to 25. Should start with, for Christ did not send me... Christ did not send you to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of, the, of Christ would not be made void. For the word, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of the world, for since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God is well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Yeah, so, so again, we see that the, the importance of preaching and teaching clear, undiluted gospel. No matter what they wanted, that's what, we, that's what, they, that's what happened. It was clear and undiluted. So they, these verses prove that it's not simply one of the methods God intends to use to accomplish the Great Commission. It's the God-ordained method. And that is the proclamation of the Word. The message of the cross is the means by which the Great Commission is to be fulfilled. Look at 1 Thessalonians 1, 5-8. I'll read it if you want to turn there. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that 
you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. The word is central here. It's the word that's central. The conversion of the Thessalonians is, is viewed as receiving the word. And the transformation of that word produces in them, produced in them, makes them into his, this model group of believers that Paul is describing. And it's because the word sounded out from them. They became Christians through the word, and they and they live like Christians by by going out and giving the word. So um, it's about the word. That's, that's it. The bottom line is the mission that Jesus has given to us in the Great Commission cannot be fulfilled apart from the proclamation of the word. So I'm just trying to set that as the foundation of what, what you need to hear before you hear this other stuff. However... I say that, but however, the contemporary church is losing sight of the truth that it's the proclamation of the word. And many are losing the resolve to stand against this, this shift, this um, shift of evangelical missions. But we've seen there's great evidence that the proclamation, and there's many more places we could go, the proclamation of the gospel is through the ministry of the word. Yet contemporary thinking and literature is shifting away from the position. So we have to ask the question, question is, it, is it mission or missions? And the reason we ask that, have to ask that question is the, the shift is from proclamation evangelism to the so-called larger or holistic evangelism. Like this is social action. It's, it's the social action missions. Today, many would call it missional. You've heard that term, missional. Um, we're, we're missional. And they, they, you know, it's kind of a, you know, you've arrived if you're missional. The downward spiral, spiral can be traced back to the Congress for World Evangelism in Louisiana, Switzerland, Switzerland in 1974. And the debate about the relationship between evangelism and social action began at the Evangelical Conference in 1966. Now, we tend to think that this whole issue is a new thing. It's issued, issued in by the emergent church and then that movement and then now pressing on into the forward into, the, into all of the social movements of today. But really, it's been around for a long time. A quote that came out of the 1974 conference said, here's what they said, the Louisiana... Louisiana covenant greatly broadened our worldviews. We were called to see that the task of evangelization was not confined to the sharing of information about Jesus. There was a life to be lived. We saw the need for the broad redemption of the world in all aspects. The year of Louisiana 1974 might also be described as a watershed year in Western social concerns. What they saw as progress, I think, is regress and a return to the thinking of the ecumenical movement. It embraced a social agenda that displaced evangelism. One of the chief proponents of the shift is a theologian named John Stott. You may have heard of him. Stott was an Anglican preacher in the Church of England from 1921 to 2011. He was a Bible scholar. He was an author. He was a prominent leader in the movement to, re to revive evangelical Christianity in the British church and worldwide. He had some good things to say. Not a lot, but he had some. Uh, two of his most famous books were Basic Christianity in 1958 and The Cross of Christ. It's probably the more famous one uh, in 1986. Among other things, he caused some controversy when he put forward a defense of annihilationism 
in, uh, in uh, evangelical essentials, a liberal ev evangelical dialogue, you know, just trying to say that annihilism is, is right, there is no hell, we're just annihilated. And uh, so, um, so that's, but so this is the guy, all right? And he, but he, he had worldwide recognition and um, this is what he said. For approximately 50 years, from 1920 to 1970, evangelical Christians were preoccupied with the task of defending the historical biblical faith against the attacks of theological liberalism and reacting against its social gospel. But now we are convinced that God has given us social as well as evangelistic responsibilities in his word. Sot confirmed the assessment that came out of the covenant, Louisiana covenant, as the turning point for worldwide evangelical consistency because it set forth the principle that both evangelism and social political involvement are part of the Christian duty missions. How did he or how did they in the conference come to see that social political involvement was part of Christian duty? The shift in thinking was demonstrated and advanced by redefining Christian mission. That's why we say mission or missions. Historically, the definitions of missions and, and missionary focused our attention on the evangelistic or discipleship mandate given by the Lord in the Great Commission. And now the redefinition summarizes all that Christ sends his people into the world to do. It's kind of subtle, but, but they, they made that shift and they redefined it. And it goes further to say it cannot be limited to proclamation evangelism. So now the redefinition means that Christian mission is dual evangelism and social action it seems to be subtle in uh, it's a it's a terminology shift from missions what we've always called missions to mission but actually it represents a major shift in theology and philosophy what actually surfaced was two less distinct parts of one mission two parts making one mission and these two parts became, became activities that cannot be separated from each other. They say, as we do one, we must do the other. In 1982, they went on to give more detail of the relationship between evangelism and social action in the Grand Rapids report on evangelism and social responsibility. And here's what they say. And just bear with me because this is, this is just important. First... Social activity is a consequence of evangelism. We can go further than this, however. Social responsibility is more than consequence of evangelism. It is also one of its principal aims. Second, social activity can be a bridge to evangelism. It can break down prejudice and suspicion open closed doors, and gain a hearing for the gospel. Third, social activity not only follows evangelism and its consequence and aim and precedes it as its bridge, but it also accompanies it as its partner. They're like two blades of scissors or the two thing, wings of a bird. This partnership is clearly seen in the public ministry of Jesus, who not only preached the gospel, but fed the hungry and healed the sick. In his ministry, proclamation and service went hand in hand. Thus, evangelism and social responsibility, while distinct from one another, are integrally related in our proclamation of and obedience to the gospel. The partnership is, in reality, a marriage. From, so from this, it, it digressed, and one of the group, members of the group came to this conclusion. And what is social transformation for the Christian? 
Is it not the entire business that God is about? Namely, the redemption of the world. And is not the mission of the church social transformation in every dimension? Is it mission or is it missions? This is where, this is where the turn came. And it's subtle, but it's important. So now we need to talk about the two terms. Incarnation or proclamation. What's interesting to note is that the most of the basis for the transition from missions to mission is said to be based on the example of Jesus. Stott and others use John 17, 18. You want to write these down. John 17, 18 and John 20, 21. We're going to look at them here in a minute. As their proof texts, for what they see as the proper basis for the Christian mission. And, and the backbone, the backbone of the position is the as so um, language in the two texts. And we'll get that here, to that in just a minute. They understand the language of the texts to establish a model of our mission which is called the incarnation model. Let me read you a quote by one of the proponents of this model as he, as he develops his argument. He says, Nor do I feel able to withdraw the conviction that our mission is to be modeled on Christ's. Just as his love for us is like the Father's love for us, for him, so his sending us into the world is like his Father's sending him into the world. If words and works went together in his ministry... They should also in ours. This shift from missions to mission opened the door to an aggressive social action agenda that was legitimized as the essential part of the Christian mission. So it just went to now um, Trump proclamation. The reshaping of the Christian mission into the incarnation model rather than the proclamation model, solidified the view that our words and works have equal place in witness. In fact, without the works, according to this view, our words will lack all credibility. So, why do I spend an entire class talking about this? What's the point? What's the big deal about incarnational versus proclamational? Well, it is a big deal. It is a big deal. It seems subtle, but it's a big deal. And this is so, so the first reason is because I'm doing the class, I'm doing this class so that we, Countryside Bible Church, understand and hold to a biblical missions strategy. Second, I want you to know that what's being said about the subject of missions in the church at large today. Uh, I want you to know what the shift is to the norm in the thinking of missions and the role of the church in missions today. Uh, not, not our thinking, but this is popular thinking today. Third, many of these same shifts are filtering into the pulpits of today. They're beginning to filter into what we have always known as uh, fundamentalist preaching and teaching on missions and evangelism. That's what we've always known it to be. In giving you these arguments, my hope is that it will cause you to think very carefully about far-reaching ramifications of what seem to be simple-sounding shifts in terms and concepts. So... Before we get even further into the weeds on this, remember that we're working off the Great Commission. That's, the, that's important. We need to base what we're talking about on the Great Commission. Matthew 9, 28, 19, and 20. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even 
to the end of the age. Since the central command of the passage is making what? Making disciples. We're looking at the method of the Great Commission. The method of discipleship making. The main question we're trying to answer here is how are disciples made? It's really important. It's, it's vitally important. In the first missions class, I shared a quote from the book, What is the Mission of the Church? And the quote was this, If everything is mission, what is mission? The authors of the book go on to say, Some of what we want to correct is an overexpansive definition that understands mission to be just about every good thing a Christian could do as a partner with God in his mission to redeem the whole world. First, as I talk about this, let me say that the word missional, the buzzword missional, is not necessarily this dirty word, this bad word, okay? We, it's, the, the problem is it's used incorrectly, but I do believe we as believers should be missional in terms of being on mission. We need to be as careful we need to be careful that everything we do should serve the mission of the church, which is to glorify God as the bride of Christ. We do need to be pleasant people to be around, not duds. We need to be engaging. We need to be appealing. We need to be others-centered. We not, not, not self-centered, but others-centered. We knew, do need to be good Samaritans. We do need to be friendly with unbelievers. We do need to be intentional and come across as attractive to those who don't know Christ. We do need to get out of our holy huddles and engage the world with the gospel. We do need to do that. Every Christian should be about those things. That's biblical. So we don't want to completely throw people under the bus for doing these things and using the word missional in that way. But at the same time, we need to be very clear that we don't replace the gospel with social justice. We cannot replace the gospel with social justice. This is very important as we attempt to do what Christ commands us to do in the Great Commission. So with this in mind, let's look at, pass at the passages that those that have pioneered this shift from proclamational to incarnational missionary efforts are using. We want to evaluate the, incarnation, the incarnational model. So what's wrong with Stott's definition of mission and the incarnational model of ministry? It kind of sounds okay. Well, let's begin by looking at some te textual arguments in the choices he uses for his proof texts which are John 17, 18, and John 20, 21. In light of all the other commissions, commission texts, it seems very strange that he would redefine mission on the basis of these two uh, kind of somewhat obscure texts. These two texts don't specify the nature of our commission, and they don't tell us what we are to do. In terms of biblical interpretation, if we're going to really look at biblical interpretation, the proper way to approach missions, or quite frankly any other subject, would be to correlate all the texts related to your subject and then move from the clearest to the most obscure. The focus of all the other texts, except John 17, 18, and 20, 21, in their opinion, at least. The, 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 the focus of all those other texts, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, what we just read, uh, Mark 16, 15, Luke 24, 47, and Acts 1, 8, are clearly, we even read some of those, are clearly proclamational. They're not incarnational. They're proclamational. They're proclaiming the word. The proper method of study then is to determine how... John 17, 18, and John 
2021 fit into what these other texts say. Not start with the obscure when it's clear in these other texts. So we have to figure that out. But that being said, even if we accept his argument that these two verses establish some kind of a biblical paradigm for missions, his claim that these two texts teach an incarnational model for missions is, I believe, uh, mistaken. So let's look at the two texts. John 17, 18, and John 20, 21. First, John 17, 18. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. John 20, 21. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. First, the context of the passage and and in view of the context, really, of the whole entire Gospel of John, focuses on the words sent in 1718 and sent and send in, in 2021. The focus, the context of the passage is the sent or sent send. But Stott here chooses to focus on as and so in those verses. As you sent me into the world, so Jesus said to them, instead of the sent and send. And that turns the entire discussion to how Jesus came and how he was sent by the Father, yet sending is the point of the texts. Just as Jesus was sent by his Father to do the Father's will, the disciples are now commissioned by the Son to do His will and carry out His work. The backdrop of this lang- for this language and concept is John 4, 34 to 38. Go ahead and turn there. John 4, 34 to 38. We're, we're, we're seeing what the, the connection is here, what the, uh, the concept is that, we're, that Jesus is getting at and... Um, And so contextually, we want to put it all together. John 4, 34 to 38. Are you there yet? All right, follow along with me. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that are White for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal. So that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. The key to understanding what Jesus meant in those two proof texts, John 17, 18, and John 20, 21, is the use of the word sent. Jesus is an evangelistic, in the evangelistic context here, says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So growing out of his own commitment to do the Father's will, which was to participate in the harvest, verse 35 37, he sends the disciples into the harvest, harvest, verse 38. The language of sending is used 41 times in the Gospel of John. It it communicates a delegated authority and responsibility for obedience on the part of the one sent. So Jesus demonstrated his dependence upon and total dependence to The Father. I mean, if there's a model we need to follow, it's that one. That's the model. We are to walk in dependence upon and obedience to Christ, since He is now the sender and we are the sent ones in the Great Commission that we're looking at. So we see the context of John 17, 18, 
and 21 make it clear that Jesus is not commissioning, commissioning his disciples to engage in social action. That's not the point of that text. It's completely foreign to the context and to import it from other passages just isn't valid. We should be asking, what do the immediate context of these verses tell us about the mission Jesus has in mind for the disciples? And you don't have to go far in John 17 to find the answer. Look at John, the mission of John 17, 4 to 6. The mission of Jesus was to make the Father's name known to the disciples by giving them his word. John 17, 4 through 6. If you have it, go ahead and read it. John 17, 4 through 6. I glorified you on the river, having accomplished that, the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. There's a very important connection here. Jesus did the work he was sent to do. The work is described as manifesting the Father's name to the men given to Christ out of the world, verse 6. The fact that they were given to Christ is evidenced by their having kept the Father's word. So in context, the sending Jesus has in mind, if it's patterned after his, is a sending that involves the manifestation of Christ's name throughout the world. And it's confirmed by the emphasis on the word in verses 8, 14, 17, and 20, where Jesus says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word. The focus of the passage is not on the incarnation, it's on the proclamation of God's word. That's the key here. The context of John 20, 21 is the same. Go ahead and turn to John 20, 19 to 23. John 20, 19 to 23. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And he came and he said, and when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you, forget, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. The text following the sending language immediately addresses the forgiveness of sins, not works of mercy or service. The giving of the Spirit, 20, verse 22, is tied to the commission, verse 21. The Spirit's ministry is presented in John's Gospel as clearly connected to the task of witnessing. Um, and if you want to go back and check this, this out, I'll give you some verses. John uh, 3.34, 15, 26, and 27, and 6, 16, 17 to 11. Luke and Acts also tie the reception of the Spirit to the task of witnessing. Luke 24, 47 to 49, and Acts 1.8. There's nothing... There's nothing in the context that clearly established that disciples were being sent by Jesus to bear witness to him and that others would believe on Jesus through their, their word. That, that is what really happened, but there's nothing in the context there that says mercy or social action. Okay, It's, it's all about disciples being sent to give witness. And that's ours, too. Andreas Kostenberger states the case against Sot's position in his book, The Mission of Jesus and the Disciples, 
according to the fourth gospel. He says, the notion of the disciples' mission as service to humanity, founded on the model of Jesus' mission, appears contrary to, contrary to Stott's assertions to be inconsistent with the fourth gospel, John's gospel, teaching on mission. Uh, focus on human service and on human need, though often characteristic of contemporary mission practice, is not presented in John's gospel as a primary purpose of either Jesus or the disciples' mission. So alongside the textual, um, contextual arguments for rejecting Stott's view, there's two theological concerns. First is the connection that Stott draws between the works of Jesus and social action. It's just a weak argument theologically. Jesus' works were miracles. He fed the hungry by turning a few loaves of bread and fish into enough to feed thousands of people. And it was to display his supernatural power and authority. Opening a soup kitchen to model what Jesus did is just a drastic difference. And it seems not to be credible here in comparison. To move from Jesus' miraculous healings to providing medical services seems to be the same. Not that we shouldn't do some of those things. I'm not saying that. As I said that earlier. As believers, we should do those, those things. But that's not the focus of making disciples. Just thinking back on that, I think the confusion gets to be uh, two things. Stott does not explain in his assertion of incarnation or missions, in incarnation missions, that the purpose of Christ's works and the theme of the book of John is to prove the deity of Christ. Right. We should be asking ourselves if this is missions, if, if we're to model Christ's model for missions, then we should ask ourselves, what did Christ send with his disciples to do? What did he send them? One thing, the gospel. Yes. Preach and teach the gospel. Didn't send them medical equipment, didn't send them food, didn't say, hey, go do these same miracles. He said one thing, go preach the gospel. That's what he gave them. The second part is just collectively in all of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is again to prove who Christ is. The, the humanity of Christ, the deity of Christ, and all of those taken collectively proves that he's God. We should look for our missions examples like what you're doing in Thessalonians and, and Corinthians yes. and so forth. Yes, it, yes, you're right. And proving his Messiahship would, yeah. would be the other, other thing there. There's no doubt that Jesus was moved with compassion by the hurts and the needs of people. It's wrong for us to conclude that the miracles were primarily a matter of compassion, though. It just is. Jesus clearly possessed sufficient power to heal everyone, but he didn't. Look at what Jesus himself said when confronted with the pressing needs of the people. Turn to Mark 1, 36 to 38, because you need to see this. Mark 1, 36 to 38. It says, Simon and his companions searched for him, Jesus. They found him and said to him, everyone's looking for you. And he said to them, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may what? Preach there also for that is what? What I came for. That's the key. It's, it's the proclamation of who he is. Here in Jesus' words, we see his purpose. Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby that I may preach there also. That is what I came for. Those words fit perfectly with what we saw in John 4 and especially in John 17. The second theological concern, honestly, is the use of incarnation to describe our mission and ministry. I mean, that is just, I don't like it. The incarnation is, uh, is an unrepeatable and unique miracle that shouldn't be trivialized. Here's what he says, and this is the reason I say trivialized, by calling it a cross-cultural journey or comparing it, the incarnation, to 
an Apollo mission to the moon. And he did that in his book, The Contemporary Christian. Biblically, the Son of God became incarnate. He was made flesh and blood so that he could make propitiation for the sins of the people according to Hebrews 2, 14 and 17. To use that language in, in his view of mission just seems to cheapen the incredible miracle of the incarnation. And it, and it is. The bottom line is that the incarnation distinctly and uniquely pertains to Jesus Christ himself. We aren't going to, we can't do that. So, what, what, I've, what we've seen in all of this is a shift from the church, in the church, from the biblical proclamation model to the social incarnation model of missions. In his zeal to promote social action, Stott and much of the church at large today have forced a lot of excess baggage into these two Bible verses and a theological concept. So, how are disciples made? All that to say, the biblical way is by proclaiming God's word, preaching and teaching to the nations that results in indigenous and self-perpetuating church. The focus of all missionary activity must be on the spreading of the word. The word through the work of the Holy Spirit is the power that produces the disciples. Um, I, I've seen this happen. I've been on the mission field and I've seen so much emphasis on, on the incarnational model. In Africa, Malawi, Africa, they don't have water. So we send missionary, not we, but the, the, the church at large sends missionaries to dig wells. The wells get dug and the gospel never goes out. And that is their mission. And, and you can say, well, they, they, have to, they have to do that in order for them to listen. No, go back to evangelism class. You know, that we, we, we proclaim God saves. And so we can't get caught into this thing that, well, if we only do this, then they'll come. We go, we proclaim the gospel. And in the midst of that, when we have opportunity, we do things to help people. We give them water if they need water. We give them medical or dental um, work. If, we, if somebody in our church um, goes, goes, we go to the mission field, the purpose of going is to, the, to, be, to make disciples. The gospel. But if we have somebody then, and they want to go along with us, then we, we do other things. Uh, so that's what we need to, to make sure that it's a subtle shift. And that it's subtle to say we're going to do this and in the process of doing these, these social agenda activities, then hopefully we can share the gospel. No, that's the wrong way to look at it. We are called to make disciples. We are called to share the gospel. And, and that's what we do. And, in, and then the other stems out of that. Does that make sense? Sorry for the college lecture. But it's really important that you see that this didn't just happen out of the blue. There was a effort that shifted and made this happen. And unfortunately, we see even in our area this happening, right? Where it's all about feeding and sending, sending clothes and doing all of those things. Um, we're, yes? When we hear about churches that are described as, we are a missions-based church or our church is a missions church or within denominations, there are times where there are branches of that have decided to be more missions-based. Is this the movement that those things have grown out of? Is that all connected to what you're describing today? Or? It's the, there is a movement that has, the church at large has, large has taken, taken to the incarnational model because it feels good. 
It just it makes you feel warm and fuzzy, and uh, and it and it allows you to think you're doing something. Um, but I can't speak to ind each individual church because that's what are they doing, you know. Um, but yet, certainly the majority are moving that way, and more and more all the time. And so we want to keep our strategy. Um, we want to keep our strategy tied to the Word. It's all about the Word and making disciples. And the Great Commission is all about making disciples. Well, um, next week we'll look at the target of the Great Commission. All right. Yes, sir. There's a, there's a lot of government money tied to those mission organizations too. There is. So there's a lot of a lot of denominations that are that are going after the government money, which then compromises them into the ability to not share the gospel because they're taking the money. And the contracts they have to sign basically say that they can't profit. Yes. Profitize. Especially in the denominations, you see that. Um, yeah. So we just need to be. We need to be careful, and we need to be biblical. And listen, we're, we may announce here soon um, is, is, is doing a work. He planted, there was a church that was planted in Israel to, do, to make disciples. That's the purpose of that church. And to help those that are there learn how to go out and make disciples. Now the war has started. And so he has found other avenues in there to help at the, with the war, and that is to provide water and food for, um, for the soldiers. And so his church is getting behind those things, and all of uh, Friends of Israel in general is. But that's not, that's not the purpose of why he was sent, and he knows that. So just remember, there's two different things we're talking about here, all right? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the time you've given us this morning. We pray that we would go in the next service to follow in, uh, with hearts that are excited to worship you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.